Welcome to episode 359 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. I've been interviewing six and seven figure entrepreneurs about the challenges, snafus, and disruptions they've been experiencing while using Zoom to launch new products or deliver their programs. What I'm discovering is that they're dealing with many of the same issues that all online entrepreneurs are facing. The cause of these issues often comes down to not enabling the right settings or understanding how to design an engaging session. The result is low attendance and high drop-off, which affects engagement and sales. To help you solve this, I'm developing a new checklist and a new talk called Overcome Common Virtual Meeting Mistakes to Increase Engagement and Sales. There are three ways you can experience this training. The training is going to debut at the Own Your Stage Virtual Summit on November 28th, and I can get you free tickets if you or your friends would like to attend. I'm also offering a group session for six and seven figure online entrepreneurs and their teams. And lastly, you can book a private training for your organization that includes personalized strategy sessions to help you implement these changes and develop more interactive, inclusive, and transformational virtual programs. If you want to know about these training opportunities or sign up for a free event optimization assessment call, which is the ones I did with these six and seven figure entrepreneurs, you can fill out the form at robbysamuels.com forward slash zoom insights. That's robbysamuels.com forward slash zoom insights. And I'll be sure to get you the information you request. Now, before we hear from our sponsor, I want to mention that this episode touches on a sensitive subject, and I don't want you to be caught off guard. Suicide is mentioned by the guest about 11 minutes into this interview. Next, a word from our sponsor, and then we'll dive into this week's interview. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy. Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Today's guest has spent equal time in her life as a performer and a maintenance technician. She's an author, educator, speaker, LGBTQIA plus advocate and compassionate DIY expert known widely as the trans handyman. Her unique brand of compassionate education in the home repair space has earned her internet fame. Her expertise includes rental maintenance, land negotiations, clogs, drywall, painting, minor electrical repairs, caulking, and so much more. She's the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Safe and Sound, a renter-friendly guide to home repair, where she shares information geared toward renters who need help fixing their homes, moving into their first apartments, and navigating the complexities of dealing with landlords. If you want to catch her in person, she's on a 52-city book tour right now. Please join me in welcoming Mercury Stardust. Welcome, Mercury. 
Oh, hi there, everybody. I hope that you're doing fantastic. I feel like I should be in a ginormous auditorium now after that introduction. <laughs> there should you be like 500 it. people standing up and just giving me a standing ovation. <laughs> you deserve it. So uh, thank you for joining us from your, your uh, home studio uh, in, in Wisconsin. And mm-hmm. as I said, this is just really exciting for me because you're someone I've sort of followed online. And it's really fun to be able to actually have a conversation I've been watching your ascendance and really cheering you on <laughs> as a fellow trans person. When you hit number one New York Times bestseller, that blew my mind. Um, and I know you also got really high in Amazon rankings as well. I don't know, like it's the whole journey on your book. What was the number? Number three, I got number I got. three. Yeah, incredible. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> as you know, this show is about building strong networks. Uh, and you have done an incredible job building community around you. And the context is leadership. So let's kick that off. You know, how do you define leadership? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead? I think early on in my life, um, leadership was uh, you got you rolled up your sleeve and you got as dirty as everyone else. Uh, my, I grew up in a farm family. You know, the way that my my dad led the you know us young pups was essentially you know, doing the hard work, waking up four o'clock in the morning and and being the first one there and and the last one to leave. That was just a mentality that we had growing up as a kid. And I think you could never ask anybody to do something you're not willing to do yourself. Um, so I always lead that way. And I also lead with a really um, like compassionate, empathetic route. You know, even though I am willing to roll up my sleeves and willing to do that work, um, there's also some things I don't want to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, so I, I'm empathetic to other people who also have that kind of mentality. So, and I think the first time that I learned how to lead, or the first time that I was like, "Wow, I could maybe be a person people listen to." Um, was when I was like a little, wee little kid on a playground, you know, <laughs> um, I was always, um, the kid picking the games we were going to play that day, you know, <laughs> and people actually listened to me for some reason, you know, I really appreciate that, that you wound back the clock back to your playground days. Cause I always do wonder what my guests were like in those early days. And I appreciate your, your compassionate leadership, your, your empathetic way of approaching things and your willingness to do it yourself. I actually had a job uh, as a Taco Bell shift manager <laughs> when I was in college mm-hmm. and I worked Friday night night shifts, Friday and Saturday night shifts. And um, our crew worked so hard, but you know, I was right there next to them. You know, I, we would do all this extra cleaning because we could, because we'd make yeah. time for it. And other people during the week, like nothing ever got done. And it's like, well, you know, we're, we're all going to roll up our sleeves and get this done. But um, I, I really appreciate this that approach. And take me back again to, the, to how you were in the playground. You know, it sounds like you're pretty outspoken. You had a lot of energy. You've got, you know, you, you're sort of a magnetic energy. People sort of drawn to you, I imagine, <laughs> even back then. Um, what did people see in you? What potential was there? Did you see that you could do things like were you running for school office like Oof. what what was that like i i was a like the vice president the secretary and the president of like i don't know a total of like 11 groups or something i was <laughs> in like fbla ffa student council class president you know um 
uh, president of Drama Club, um, the Mentors Association. I was a uh, for eighth graders and first graders. Um, I I was in a collegiate uh, or type of debate team or some crap. <laughs> <laughs> I I was in so many different things all the time. Um and I was always into it. I I the 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 very last year I was in high school, there was a moment where um our teachers basically went on this like no extra work strike. So they were not going to be mentors for any after school program. Um and that also meant that some our like event bu- budget went right down into the ground or some crap. I don't know how it all worked out, but it did. And um, everyone was panicked about where money was going to come from. So I organized um, uh, our little local um, craft like organization. I just like organized this craft event and I got all these vendors to show up. I would be on these phone with these like crafters who were like, 60 years old and they would be talking to me a high schooler who was 16 you know and, and we're we're just talking and then people would mistake me for a grown-up because i'm like putting together this craft show um but yeah we we made all the money that we needed for prom and we needed for all these other events that year off of this one event that i organized in a matter of like a month and a half it's amazing and i did that while I was also like a senior or junior in high school. And my mentality was always that I, I, I was always very, my mom told me early on, I want you to be liked by everybody. I don't want you to be in one specific group. That's a lot of pressure to put on a kid. But I, I legitly thought that for the longest time that I had to be everyone's friend. I was in every group. <laughs> I was in every sports team. I think um, I was a, a a three. I was a varsity. I, I basically did all three sports. I did the football or cross country. Uh, and I did basketball and I did um, track. I did that every, all four years. So I got like, uh, a Leatherman's jacket with all that on there when I was a senior. But like, I was really, oh yeah, I didn't tell you the best part. But last year that I I was um, doing that in a, a senior in high school, I was kicked out of my house. I had my own apartment across the street from my high school. And I um, was the a full-time swing shift manager at McDonald's down the street. So I did all of this while living on my own uh, for the first time in 18 because I got kicked out for being queer as a kid. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering when that enters this into this this conversation. Um, yeah. Because was this Wisconsin when you were growing up or somewhere Yeah, else? good old Mississippi. Uh, 100% is the Mississippi of the North. It is very um, hard in small rural parts of the state quite like Mississippi is like the, the better metropolitan areas are much more uh, cultural wide in their range of human spectrum, you know? Um, But the rural areas were really like, this is how you live and this is how you talk and this is how you interact with others. If you're outside of that norm, it could be difficult. How did your friends and like your classmates interact with you after you came out because you were involved with everybody knew you. So how did they respond? Well, um, I also kind of knew how to pass for being, you know, this 
perceived as like cisgender heterosexual person. So I I didn't I stayed away from my femininity real from early on. I like leaned into this masculine presence um, in order to hide essentially. So um, I I would have kids like my locker mates would say to me, uh, "You're one of the good ones." I heard that constantly. I heard that like ver- those phrases of like, "Oh, you're not flamboyant," or at least you're not this way. And this was like in in a cultural time period. Uh, this was like in the mid two thousands. There was a mentality in those uh, and during that time period where people were like, l- l- "Who gives a stuff? I don't really care." You know, like a lot of kids were indifferent. They didn't care. You know, and I think we see that more now when it comes to sexuality. I think people, uh, largely as a public, I think we've come to the understanding of like, I don't really care what sexuality you are, you know, I want to get there when it comes to gender, <laughs> but we are definitely there when it comes to, uh, um, sexuality. So for the most part, kids were pretty good to me, um, uh, in, in high school, as long as I didn't speak up, if I was willing to just, you know, not talk about that part of my life and not date people when I was in high school, I, I got along with people. Were there um, other out people in your high school? No. Um, so kinda and no, uh, you know, anytime I tell this story, it's always hard not to that like immediately go into this like really heavy story, but it's my reality. I had my best friend in the whole world at the time was, uh, Dana people. Uh, and now she is a very out and proud, uh, lesbian. And our other best friend, uh, was, um, Heather Bomsky and Heather Bomsky, uh, was this amazing, beautiful person who probably by today's standards uh, and our understanding of gender would be out as a trans mask person. Uh, unfortunately, um, Heather took her own life when we were in high school. So when I was much younger, um, that happened, I felt the need to come out. I felt the need to speak out. I felt the need to to talk to my dad and having Danny talk to her dad and and because like Heather didn't get that opportunity. So I felt like it was really important and we were pushed for, you know, some type of like gain straight alliance at school. And I was told, I don't, why do you want to make waves? Like, why, why do you, why do you want that attention? You know? Um, so I just, I learned to keep that part of my life s- quiet and I, I wasn't allowed to speak on it. Man, it really does show early leadership, though. And, you know, given the news of your friend, um, you know, dying by suicide, and then you bravely coming out to your parents, you could imagine that they, like, had the opportunity to embrace you and didn't, um, knowing that the this other option was very visibly right there. Like, you not yeah. being here at all was something that could happen and had just happened in yeah, your community. It- my my dad uh, kicked me out of my house, uh, out of his house, I think he would say, uh, when I was 18 years old. And the same day I drove over to Danny's house and uh, her dad kicked her out of the house too. And then blamed me. Blamed me because I was, you know, the, the queer one. Uh, everyone knew in town, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, her dad blamed me that I, I rubbed off on her. Um mm-hmm. Because that's so that how was, it works. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly how that works. That's the that's the agenda they always talk about, you know. But all that being said, 
yeah, I learned I, I had to be very self-efficient early on. I, I it was a survival thing. Um, I felt like if I was out, it was if I did everything better than everybody and I tried to extremely hard at everything I did and I be I was friends with everybody, maybe I would be accepted. Mm-hmm. I I pushed and my leadership came from a place of like if I if I leg behind, if I'm in the back here. The chances are of me stumbling and falling and falling way behind is way higher because I'm different and I I don't react to the things like other people do and et cetera, you know? So I was like, I'll run ahead of them. If I run ahead of everybody and I lead the way, maybe no one will notice that I'm different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was really my mentality as a kiddo. When you were kind of growing up, was there a plan for what was going to happen career-wise? Like, was college a given and then no longer an option when you're on your own? Was Did you well, have something particular you were drawn to? That's the interesting part about my early days and that, that transition period is that, like, you know, I did all the stuff, right? I was an overachiever, 3.8 GPA, you know? Like, I was really close to being a valedictorian uh, my senior year. and And then... Right. And, and, and then you have this time period where I get to a point where I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't want to do any of this. So I, I, I barely applied for college. <laughs> you know, I, I applied to like maybe two and I got rejected by one. And I, I really didn't know what to do. Um, and I felt stuck. But then I got accepted to a private college that I was going to have to pay a lot for. But getting out of town was really important. I've, I worried so much about survival, Robbie, that I didn't really think ahead. Everything was current right now, what we need right now, how I can take care of myself right now. So college was like, I'll, yeah, I could go, but I got to take time out of my day that I am using to survive in right. order to plan ahead, you know? So yeah, I went to school for theatrical performance though. That is another, like I, I went farthest away from a stable career I could possibly get, <laughs> you know? But you went but to I, something you loved. I mean, you were, you had the ability to, to choose because you were the only one, if there was a choice, it was yours to make. And yeah. that was something you were passionate about and you were good at. and it get you motivated you needed an escape plan to get out of town. So yeah, getting a chance to go to school. Where'd you go to school? I went to school at Edgewood college down here in tropical Madison, Wisconsin. And I, I went to school specifically for theater because I was so good at pretending to be stuff. You know, like I was so good at pretending to be straight. I was so good at pretending to be, you know, a man. I was so good at pretending to be, everyone's favorite person that I I was obsessed with it. And when I came to college, man, the whole thing was flipped upside down. I felt like I, I was like a, you know, a fish out of water completely. And I felt like I was behind in everything. I mean, I went from this really successful student to like a below average student. Like my GPA, I think my freshman um, semester was like a 2.2. I, I, I mean, I dropped off the face of the planet in a lot of ways. And I think ultimately the reason why, because there's like burnout. I burnt out at like 17 or 18. I was living on my own and trying to make things happen. 
And then that like first semester, I like barely went to class. I ended up uh, um, dating um, girls when I was in college and I got really confused with my sexuality at that point. So now I'm like, I've been identified openly as, as, as a you know gay boy for like four years of my life. And now I'm finding out that I'm also attracted to women. That's the most confusing thing that you could honestly do to a kid. Having that like absolutely um, like confounding mentality of like, oh no, <laughs> what is this now? And then I'm, am I proving my dad right that it was just a phase? Oh no, I got kicked off for an entire year. I lived on my own and I'm straight, you know, like it, it, it like confused me so much because I didn't know what bisexuality was. My, I, I was lucky enough to know anything about, you know, being gay at all. And yeah, it was a really wild time. And in my college days, my mom was diagnosed with cancer and she passed away uh, my senior year. Uh, and then I had built, finally, after four years of college, I had built a somewhat good name in college. I had built like people, I, I wasn't like extremely well liked, but I was someone ever knew and respected, I think, to some extent. I tried really hard. Um, but I wasn't excelling at things. I just never, I mean, weirdly enough, no matter how hard I tried being a leading man, it was like really hard for me. Who would have thought? <laughs> and I always felt like I was pulling teeth to be a man on stage. So I was literally having a hard time. And when my mom passed away, I had two credits left and I dropped out of college. Um, and I, and I, for years, I kept thinking I would go back. I would go back. And it took me about four years to realize I was a college dropout. And that was a wild ride to like have this really, I would deem a very successful, you know, high school career, going into college, feeling completely lost going out of college and not really having any framework. And then all of a sudden I saw an ad on Craigslist where someone was looking for uh, jugglers and cabaret performers. And I was like, oh, wow, I can do both of those. I can juggle and I'm a, a performer of some kind. Let's do it. And then I toured around the country, um, 20, 125 different cities in a course of a like five-year period um, as a cabaret performer and as a juggler. And while I did that, I also worked as a full-time maintenance technician uh, back to that survival thing. And then I started slowly building a community of performers around me and slowly started building a community up. And then I felt like my life was coming back to like this full circle moment of me constantly building, having it fall apart and constantly building and having it fall apart over and over again until I knew the right pieces to put together. So the whole, you know, deck of cards didn't fall down over and over again. I finally knew how to do it. It feels like the significance of this is that you also figured out how to attract the right people to you, the people who saw you and that you weren't having to act in front of, right? Yeah. Like, like the effort to be somebody else all the time. I mean, this is something I think a lot of listeners can relate to in different ways. Maybe it's not gender and sexuality. It could be race. You know, code switching is a thing where you're constantly trying to figure out how people are interacting to you. How do you need to show up? Um, there are people who just like, you know, even if, if, if you 
are a city kid who's thrown into a country <laughs> setting or vice versa. Yeah. There's lots of ways we act as if so we could, you know, try to fit in. But for you to finally now be around people who are sort of seeing you for who you were, there is this interesting dichotomy between the day job you ended up with, which is a very, you know, hands-on yep. maintenance kind of work, which is a very, you know, I, I have been looking for a handywoman for years. I, I've lived in, uh, bought a house two years ago and I found a handywoman who was, um, pretty much retired, but she came out of retirement to work for me uh, when I was first moving in. And I have not been able to find someone else because she essentially wants to retire. <laughs> and yeah. I, I'm i like, hello, why can I not find a handywoman? I wanted like, I'd <laughs> like to hire a handywoman. Hello. Yeah. Uh, and so stumbling across your stuff these days was really like, yes. Uh, and I want to know, you know, how to find a community that way. But I love the dichotomy between this sort of you know, blue collar, hands-on work, and then you up there in the cabaret stage doing yeah. your thing. Do you find anyone else having that crossover or do you feel like these are separate worlds still for you? I think that they started out of survival and I always thought they had to be separate. I like, I didn't meet too many people who were active performers, right? Who were construction workers or something. But what I, who I did meet was the audience. And I would see these grown men that have calluses on their hands and they were big and gruff and they were like, you know, what we would classify as a bear in our community. <laughs> and then they would be like, oh yeah, I know I work on a construction site. And I would be like, what? You work on a construction site? You know, like, I'm like, dude, we're, you know, we're in a gay bar. You know? <laughs> you know, like it was a really interesting experience to see so many different people in a blue collar world live in almost secret um, from their all their lives. Like I would ask them, are you out at work? And they'd be like, no way am I out. You know, I have to make sure that I like, you know, take two cars to a different city, be picked up by a friend and then, you know, hitchhike the rest of the way here. So no one knows it's me, you know, like the mentality was very like, gotta hide or I can be, I can be gay. Uh, and I could, you know, but I can't talk about my boyfriend. I can't talk about my relationships. I can't, nothing in my work life can ever relate or be uttered that I'm gay. The men know it, but they don't, they don't want to talk about it. So for me, um, it, I, I, I was in this industry where I felt like I had to shut up. Like I, I could not talk about, um, being a queer person or a queer kid, and I did juggling. It took me a long time to like tell people that I was in gay bars, uh, traveling the country. People would just, I would come to work sometimes with like a little bit of eyeliner on uh, from the night before, and then immediately people would jump on me and make fun of me for the whole week. One time I came to work with blue nail polish on, and I got called every single slur you could honestly imagine. And they maybe do like twice as much work that week. It was like the most insane environment, but the environment was survivor of the fitness. And the most macho person was usually the person people listen to in this industry, uh, regardless if they're right or not. Um, and that's what we did, you know? So it, it was a very, it, it, in order for me to do the things I wanted to do and take care of myself, I had to be okay with with getting talked to that way. And I felt like I was always the odd person out in every single conference meeting, every single meeting we had. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I would go and I would go on the stage 
and I would have 500 people screaming for more. You know, I I, I had this innate, amazing power to be like, okay, I've just, I got done cleaning a toilet. And then I flew to Las Vegas to compete for the Burlesque Hall of Fame Weekender. Like I was at the pinnacle of the performance world in Burlesque. And then on Monday I came back and I finished cleaning that toilet. And that was, that was the hike. I felt like I could be glamorous. I could be, you know, on the top of that world. And then the next day I could just suck it up and I could just do this job because that's what, how you paid the bills. Yeah. Survival, you know, and I'm thinking about how much glitter really is hard to get off. <laughs> yeah, I know glitter bombing. I, I used to glitter bomb myself on stage all the time. So I would go to work and I would just be sparkly. I'm like, there's no <laughs> way you can get rid of that. <laughs> no, yeah, no, it stays with you. It stays with you for a long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're like, you have a little something, huh? Uh, I, I, it's hard, but you had the experience already of living as a sort of closeted or trying to stay under the radar, not so just closeted, but staying under the radar queer person <clears throat> in many areas of your life. But you managed to break through that. And that's the part that I find really fascinating yeah. is that you're now being celebrated for all of who you are. Well, at least the two parts we've discussed so far. You yeah. know, you're being celebrated for your knowledge base around home repair, and you're being celebrated for being you, like not having to tone anything down or change anything about who you are. Yep. That is miraculous. And is. I want to really honor that you've arrived at that place, which I don't think your younger self could have even envisioned. Like, this is not even on a bucket list. Oh, this no is... way. So, how did you? bridge these two like very divergent communities you know you start to find your yeah your people i think like the best stories in life it was unpredictable but predictable all at once um the year was 2021 <laughs> and i was at this point i thought i had to retire from burlesque i i really did i at this point covid had wiped out our community, there was no live show still early in 2021. And I just like, I didn't know what to do. Burlesque was my outlet. It was a way that I kept in touch with people. It was a way that I felt connected to the world. It was a way that I coped with the fact that I felt like I pushed away my performance world and other things in order to survive, you know? Um, but then a friend of mine said, Hey, you know, you should try an online show again. We have a, like a, a production studio here in town that could work. And yeah, we have like professional cameras and editors and we'll do all that work for you and we'll put it out every week. All you got to do is show up. And then I said, okay, I guess I can dust off, you know, my, my, my high heels and get back on that stage one last time. And I did. And we did a few shows and there were like 50 people watching, 60 people watching. And we're like, oh boy, this is, this is going to be hard. And a friend said, you know, you have a big personality. You should try TikTok. And I said, who would watch a 32-year-old uh, trans lady from the, you know, um, the, the middle of nowhere, Wisconsin? Uh, what am I going to talk about? And they're like, I don't know, drywall. And that was a joke. That was a joke. Okay. So I get on TikTok. I make a few videos. Doesn't get any traction. And then one day I am sitting at work and I had um, accidentally cracked a porcelain toilet. So I like had poop all over me. Like I, I was like, oh, great. And you always have a change of clothes and the job site. 
when you're in maintenance. So I'm like, I basically go downstairs, I get changed and I go in my car and I'm just scrolling through TikTok mindlessly for my 15 minute break because I'm just like worn out. And I see this woman, this poor lady in her like mid twenties crying about how she has like two kids in the back row crying and she's trying to use this ratchet strap to wrap around this canoe on her car and she has no idea what she's doing. And it, she was just like, oh, that poor girl. And she turns out she was also a Las Vegas showgirl. So I was like, oh my God, totally relate to this lady, you know? <laughs> um, and then I made uh, a response video um, that was not like any of the all other response videos. All the other response videos were mean and rude and like talked down to her. Mine started right out of the gate. And I said, hey, there, hi. My name is Mercury. I'm an intersectional feminist trans maintenance lady. The longest title that you could think of in a 60 second video. <laughs> it took me 19 seconds to introduce myself. And then I said, hey there, hi. Uh, I'm going to do the best I can to help you. And I talked to her in a really genuine, straightforward way. And then I finished it by saying something around the lines. You're worth the time it takes to learn a new skill. And I just clicked go. Didn't edit it. Did not know what I was doing. Had no idea at all what was going to happen. Posted it. And I forgot about it. And I drove home. And I was just chilling with my partner ZZ and we're just having a good night. And then I thought, Hey, maybe I should check how that video is doing. I looked and I was at 120,000 views in that video. And I had gained something like two or 3000 followers. And I was like, for what, <laughs> you know? And then by the next morning I had 20,000 followers and I had that video had had like 800,000 views. And I just was like, okay, I guess I'm going to talk about drywall. Uh, and I and I did. And that evolved into a better understanding of branding. Um, I changed my name to the Trans Handyman. My my best friend, Matthew, made my logo that I still use to this day. Um, and I logo-defied all of my videos. Um, and I just went at it. I leaned into this this very good-natured, very soft-spoken lady on the internet who would make you feel good about yourself when you're, um, you know, learning about this stuff. And I, because I was also a burlesque instructor, I knew how to talk to people to make them un, you know, to make them not nervous. You know, I was so good at speaking to people who were vulnerable about burlesque that I was able to like do the same for maintenance. I just used the same verbiage. I, in, in burlesque, I would always say all bodies are burlesque bodies. And then I would say everyone can learn maintenance. You know, maintenance skills are for everybody kind of mentality. Crossed over perfectly. And then it just started blowing up, Robbie. Like it was by in three months, I had a million followers. And within four months, I had left my job and started being a full-time content creator. Within just six months of that, I got myself a business partner and we signed a major book deal. And now a year and a half after that, I'm here, a number one New York Times bestselling author. Wow. I mean, there's so many things that fell into place, but there's also so many things that you did, right? So one, you developed the technical skill around yep. home repair. 
So you you had a deep, deep knowledge and confidence that came with that deep, deep hands-on knowledge around that. You suffered and lived through an uncomfortable space of being who you are in a professional setting that did not support you in order to develop that. You did not shy away from a job that was hard to be in because you were good at the job, right? Like you could have yeah. left that whole world a long time ago. And we would never know who you were. We'd also not know how to <laughs> fix drywall. <laughs> so there's so many things. By the way, that ratchet thing, I went back and looked for that video <laughs> when I was getting to know you because I heard about that story and we had a moving situation where we didn't know how to do that. And I, to this day, wow. I have no idea how to wrap them up. They like I get them off and they just they're a huge snake pile on the floor yep. because I am like, ah, you know, stop touching them. Something uh, will happen. Industrial Ziploc bags, industrial <laughs> Ziploc bags. I keep them um, in the bags and then I zip them up and put them in the back of my car. That's the best way to do it. If you wrap it up, you can kink the uh, the straps and make your life a lot harder in the road. So You're the making me feel you... better about not yeah. having wrapped them up. Yeah, don't. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Nothing. Perfection is for you know people who spend too much time worrying about perfection. People who get away, uh, who succeed in life, I think. People who figure things out is the most simple way to do things that works best for them, and they commit to it. And I think that's what worked for me. Like yes. I, I, I learned that um, I wasn't going to be accepted in maintenance. So I did the same thing I did in high school was I put everything I had into this. I took every qualification class. I took every, uh, I read every single how to book. I watched countless of hours of this old house, this old house, Bob Villa. I watched it all and I was obsessed with learning and to be better than all my peers. They weren't going to automatically come to me. They weren't going to ask me for advice. I had to prove my worth to them every single day. And that really made this mentality of like, boy, I better show up or shut up. You know, like it was very, it was very much that way. So um, when I, you know, I'm combining these two worlds, this, you know, getting really good at doing maintenance, but also really good at presenting ideas. Yes. Like that Teaching. is... And yes. teaching people who are uncomfortable yes. right, and are uncertain and feel like they should probably already have confidence and they don't. You know, there's like yeah. the, there's the way you feel and there's the way you feel about how you feel. And you really yeah. got that. You that's the empathy that you have that a lot of people don't have. And it's the reason I was looking for a handy woman because I'm not a handy guy. And I pushed off owning a home until I was in my like later 40s because for one, 20 years ago, there was no YouTube and I couldn't imagine how I'd ever learn how to do anything. My my family did not teach me. My dad was not handy, right? So my mom's probably the one who knew how to, you know, put up a towel rack kind of thing. And yeah. so I we just didn't have a lot of experience about that. So the idea of owning a home and being responsible for all these things and not having anyone to ask, but I don't want to be talked down to. So yeah. part of me desiring to hire a handy woman was A, there are things I just don't want to bother learning. But also there are things I wouldn't mind learning but I want someone to explain it to me in a way that like I can get it and I can feel okay asking because when I present in this body and I walk into Home Depot, no one asks me if I need help. Yep. My wife walks in the door of Home Depot and 17 people walk over to ask her if she needs help. She might know exactly what she needs and talk down to the what ratchet and blah, 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 but they're going to go and ask her for help and they're going to leave me on my own wandering the aisles. <laughs> yep, so 100. you show up 
And you're like, here's all the things. And your new book, I got it right away. My wife was on, uh, got the advanced copy. She did the review. Like I went and bought the book. I'm so excited because, and it's sitting in our bathroom. It's definitely like the book you just kind of keep flipping to. And we, we leave it open for each other. Did you see this section? Let me talk about it. Did you see this section? <laughs> it's a good coffee table book. <laughs> it's a good coffee table book. So it really is. I think it's great. And it, I, I'm curious about how did you build the team that helped you skyrocket? Because a lot happened in the last year and a half and you had certain skills, but you know, creating this into an empire, where did, where did you find the partner you partnered with? How did you yep. know what kind of business you wanted to build? Did you know other people who were building this kind of entrepreneurship, this kind of like thought leader, you know, books and speaking and all tours and all yeah. that? Like, how did you build that kind of community and who helped you find your way? This is what I think separates me from the entire co content community. Uh, community, Like the content creator community is one of individualism. It is very like I, I meet them uh, at VidCon or wherever I've been. And a lot of content creators will have a management company they work with that will also like one manager will have 20 people that they, they manage, which never made sense to me. And I would watch my favorite YouTubers online. And one of them that, that seemed to always be on top of it was Philip DeFranco. And I had followed Philip DeFranco well, uh, since he first started being like a shock jock news guy on YouTube in like 2007. And I saw him like make SourceFed and all these other like little channels that turned into larger businesses and then sell SourceFed for a million dollars. And I kept seeing how this little content creator, this little guy who just started making videos in the backyard of his family home, turned it into a multi-million dollar business on YouTube and managed to make it work. I was like obsessed with that mentality. How did this guy uh, from Florida, I think at the, in the moment, how did he do it? You know, and I took every lesson that I remember him talking about in every podcast he was on and I applied it to this moment in my own way. I, I, I function very differently than, than DeFranco does. Um, very different mentality uh, to the very core of me. But I took a lot of lessons I've heard him talk about and apply it in various ways. For one was I immediately, from the moment I started growing, I found a community who could take care of me. I had moderators who would be people who watched me. And I would do a live every single day. And I then would ask these people to be my moderators. And then I had 20 to 30 moderators that I talked to every day. They kept me support and I would go on and they would help me make sure that I could do a live and that helped me grow my community. And then come, um, I think about a year into this, I finally realized that like, okay, I think I'm ready. I'm ready to start putting together a business. Like I need to make this a business. These are one, these are one minute video videos online that I got to have sustainability and I'm not good at booking speaking events and I'm not good at doing this. I'm not good at trying to keep up with all of my online stuff and also run a business. So I need someone who can do that. And I had another friend of mine who was a restaurant runner and owner here in Madison. His name was Dave Heidi. He was like a local celebrity. And Dave reached out to me and said, I think you're drowning. I can help you. And he's like, 
please come over to the restaurant and let's talk. So I go over to Dave Heidi's and we sit there and we talk for about two and a half, three hours of what I wanted and what direction I wanted to go in and how I wanted to make my content creation like last forever and and how I thought the trans handyman brand could really like sustain a lot of cultural movements and how we're like, we're ahead of something right now for renters and trans people that I think could change how we view trans people and um, rental properties and how we could do this. I just needed sustainability and I don't know how to do that. And Dave was like, okay, I like what you're doing. I like your idea. I'm going to hire someone on my staff to work for you for three months. And after that three months, it's your job to pay that person. It's your job to make this work. But if you can make it work in three months, you got yourself uh, your first employee. And I looked at Dave and I'm like, really? And Dave's like, all I ask is that you pay me back when you can pay me back. But don't worry about anything else. And I was like, okay. So... I did that. We had interviews. We had like 75 people apply all across the, the the country. And people were willing to move here to work with me because I put it on, on TikTok. And then this amazing woman by the name of Maggie Conrad uh, did an interview with me. And she was so overqualified. I mean, the, the smartest, the quickest whip I've ever met she was so brilliant and determined and you could tell that she just had a fire and she wanted to like help every single person um, that I wanted to help, you know? And Maggie said, my job would be to facilitate your dreams and to help make your dreams possible. But I can get you the money that you need to do that. And I was like, I'm hooked. I don't know who this is, but I'm hooked. And that first two weeks of running a company, I randomly decided to raise $100,000 for trans healthcare. And Maggie stood by me and I was on a live stream for 24 hours and she made sure I had food and make sure I was taken care of. And that was the first time we knew, I was like, we raised $120,000 in 24 hours. Holy cow, this is something. We have people who are willing to help other people and people who are willing to watch me for 24 hours. And oh my God, we got something. We got something. So immediately we used that momentum to book me speaking gigs and to finalize a book deal. And Maggie got those both done in the first three months. And then we took those paychecks and we paid back Dave. And I told Maggie, I know what I want to do. I want you to be my business partner. I want you to go 50-50 with me. And I want to do this together because there's no way I can do this alone. And that's what we did. We like, and ever since we've been, we've been detached by the hip ever since for the last year and a half. And we just kept on working and we found out what worked for us. We tried doing another online show, um, Five Star Tees, and we hired my first employee named Basil. And Basil was this really talented um, performer and they just they, they were just so much fun and they, they knew my burlesque world. So we hired them as a show director. And then when the show was ending and I was retiring finally uh, um, in burlesque last December, I was like, I'm going to really miss working with Basil. I'm going to really miss it. And then I asked Maggie, can we hire Basil? Do we have any money to hire Basil? Maggie's like, what would Basil do? And I'm like, I don't know. Um, but I'm sure we can find a way to make them do something. 
Um, so we hired them on and then we had them as my personal assistant for about like a month and a half. And then I was like, you know what? You're my creative director because they were helping me with all my outfits and all my makeup and all of our decisions as far as entertainment went. And, you know, we're starting a new business for apparel and we're doing all this stuff. And, and Basil was right there the entire time. So I'm like, okay, this is your role now. And then Maggie basically needed the same for her. And that's when we brought on our very amazing uh, chief of staff, Ziggy. And it was the same thing. We just kept on bringing people on that we liked, that we knew we worked well together. And we were like, we'll find the role for you. We're just going to make sure you can get taken care of. And we pay everyone equitably. Everyone right now in the company gets paid the exact same that I get paid. Um, and I believe very strongly in that. I believe very strongly in, I'm if I'm going to do well, and if I'm going to make 35 bucks an hour or something, then I want everyone on my team to make 35 bucks an hour. And I'm not going to take a raise if they don't take a raise. And that's how we're going to do this together because there's no way I can succeed. I tried. I tried doing this by myself for years and I failed all the time. So there's no way to do this unless I take care of them and we do this long term. And that's how we've been doing this. This is honestly how all of this has worked. And then we so raised $2 million for, for gender affirming care earlier this year in 30 hours and then sold 10,000 pre-orders of my book in the first day. Uh, all of it comes from having a team that was willing to put in just as much effort as I was. There are so many lessons to take from what you just shared about how you sort of sought out help. And then once you found the person, you figured out the role um, your friend who gave gifted you those three months to move you from sort of struggling yep. solopreneur to building a business as a business owner. What a gift that you were able to have that time to to get started. Um, a little note for those who are listening. I actually got uh, my first virtual assistant spent a summer with me unpaid. And the pay was that I was training her on all these tasks that she could then monetize. Um, as a book, you know, someone supporting book launches, someone supporting a podcast host. And so, you know, you don't always have to have the funding to get sort of a ramp to get started. Um, by the time that three months was passed, I had enough going that I could fund having a VA and I've never yep. been without one. Um, I, I, we're getting close to the end. I just want to comment on something that I know is really important to you. And I know you get asked this question all the time. So I'm going to shorthand this for you you wrote a book for renters and you know that's a huge market and i think that your reasons for doing it that you've talked about that this is an underrepresented almost voiceless community of people who feel they don't have access they don't have rights and they don't know how to negotiate with landlords they don't know how to deal with yeah. landlords who are not being responsive and they also don't have the right to like you know call a maintenance person and just have it all be fixed who's paying for that so giving them the DIY tools to at least become uh, sufficiently able to solve the problems they're living with so their day-to-day -day life is better. It's an incredible movement that, you know, I don't think a lot of people understand the full scope of what you've created. And I think that's still going to be unfolding as you're doing all these talks. But I just thought it'd be remiss to not comment on the fact that this is not just another maintenance book. Um, this is yep. about you giving, uh, I don't know, like tools really to people who need them. And even as a homeowner who doesn't have a lot of skills or confidence in this area, I find it really invigorating and valuable to be part of that 
because I don't think it's about home ownership. I think it's about understanding how to take care of the home you live in. And thank you for thank you for creating that. Thank you so much. That's exactly we wanted to lay down a groundwork for people to sink their teeth into. And this book can be basically um, my magnus opus. You know what I mean? Like it is um, the thing that people will know me for for years to come and people will know that I fight for renters. No matter what, they'll know that. And that was branding. A lot of it is like, there is no one doing this. That was the most shocking part when we were pitching the book was people would ask me, why do you want to do renters? And I would look at them and be like, because there isn't anyone doing that. 36% of Americans are renters. And in major metropolitan areas, that number can jump up to 73% like it is in Tampa Bay, Florida. Like, are you kidding me? These are astronomical numbers. Why are you leaving money on the table? Like, why are, why are you so focused on the fact that, oh, if there's no one doing it, it must mean there's no market for it. Or no one thinks you can do it. <laughs> yeah, so, talk about a blue ocean. I mean, yeah, yeah, that you really went where no one else was, was, uh, was it, feasting. And then you layer on the top of the idea that very few people knew anyone who was like an openly queer, progressive person in maintenance. You like you put that on top of that. Well, then you have this following of people that don't just know me for maintenance, but they know me as a queer woman and they know me as like a vocal advocate for our community. Right. And then they're willing to throw money at it and support it. And then that helps us reach even a larger audience based right. off of the, the good work that we do. Um, the helping other people. It's it's brilliant. So as I move to our final wrap-up question, I just want to do a quick pause for a word from our sponsor. So my wrap-up question is this. Uh, I hope we find a way to stay connected. I know you're going to be traveling your tour for a while, but I'll be watching you from afar. And if we ever get to cross paths, I'm going to want to ask you, you know, what are you celebrating then? What do you, let's say it's a year from now we get to connect. What, what are you looking forward to the most in the year ahead? I hope that I have the house of my dreams. We are working on it right now. Uh, my next book will be about uh, me being a homeowner for the first year. It's the first year of homeownership with Mercury Stardust. And I'm very excited about that experience. But I that means I have to find a house and I have to write down and do all the work that I talk about. I got to put my money where my mouth is, basically. <laughs> so I'm really excited about that opportunity. That's incredible. Well, I can't wait to celebrate you and all the work that you do. How can people find you and follow your work? You can find me by just uh, Googling Mercury Stardust. I'm <laughs> basically everywhere. Um, I'm on YouTube, uh, TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook, all under Mercury Stardust. And you can always stay in touch with us best by going to our email list or Patreon if you type in uh, Mercury Stardust and go to MercuryStardust.com. Fantastic. We'll put all those links in the show notes at OnTheSchmooze.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mercury. What is your key takeaway? Something you put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 359. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with that one friend you know would love to hear it. Subscribe or follow for free so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review. 
Thank you in advance. Look forward to connecting again next week. We'll interviewing another talent professional who overcame challenges on their way to success. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership and entrepreneurial journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.